Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today to mark the nearest episode to Halloween we're having a double bill and I'm joined by Andrew Glazebrook to discuss David's first transformation and the many stages of Dead Jack in An American Werewolf in London. Sir, I am fluent in six million forms of communication. This signal is not used by the Alliance. It could be an Imperial code. Hello, Andrew. Hi, you all right? I'm absolutely fine. Thank you very much. And thanks for coming along for this today. This is the last of our October horror characters. Um, so, first question for you. Mm. I'm guessing, as you were too young to see Alien in cinemas, were you too young to see this one? Yeah, um... Again, probably the same video shop uh, that, that you know went to to get this uh, with a bunch of mates. Um, I'd seen uh, the cover of a. There's a very sort of well-known Fangoria cover, um, which is the. It's a painted version of the the, the werewolf. Uh, I think it's possibly the fave first Fangoria that I ever bought that, mm. um, and so that had like you know good pictures and things inside. So I didn't. I was aware of this movie. Um, when I seen it, and uh, yeah, I watched it with a um, a friend who had a, a video recorder, and uh, probably again all all far too young to be watching this movie, but uh, and it never it, it never affected me in later life. No, no. <laughs> what age were you? Oh, uh, when you saw it? Well, it, it came out in eighty one, didn't it? That's right. Yeah. So I imagine, I'm just trying to think when it would have eventually showed up on video. Could it have been about eighty three? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd have been, uh, I'd have been maybe sixteen or seventeen anyway. So yeah, not not too young. It's not like I was, a, you know, twelve year old or something. So, so just j- just the right age to appreciate Jenny yeah. Agatha, then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should mention uh, magazines. You said Fangoria. You just reminded me uh, there was an issue of Starburst when the film came out, and the back cover would. Have you got it? The back cover is a full. The whole page is a close-up of one of the um the nightmare nazi werewolves yeah faces. definitely got that one yeah that uh, is a scary photo and to have that on the back of a, a magazine yeah. you find in the news agents you know? yeah that that's right i do remember that one is it is there a starburst as well which has kind of got them all on the front all of the yeah. corpses from the uh, from the porno cinema. cinema at the end, yeah. yeah. Yeah, is that the same edition? It might be the same one, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. quite a bloody front cover as well. Well, I don't know if you'd get away with that these days now. Yeah, especially on Starburst, which I suppose was a bit more of the sci-fi magazine at the time. Yeah, it was the British um, version of Starlog, basically, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. Fangoria, you could understand them getting away with it, but Starburst was a, was a bit more sci-fi. Yeah. Um, but that, that that was the time when they were dipping more and more into horror. You had Alan Jones doing the film reviews and he was doing all the Argento festivals and stuff like that. So they were branching into horror yeah, at that time, yeah. I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, cer- certainly a movie I love from day one. 
Um, you know, no doubt about it. It made a, an impact straight away. Great, great movie. Still is. Mm. Yeah. So. For me, I mean, this was actually the first film I ever... I, not not I showed because I was on training, but the very first week I started um, as a projectionist, this is the very first film I ever saw while I was being paid as a projectionist. All right, okay. Yeah, I remember in our two big screens, we had American Werewolf in London in one screen, and in the other screen, we had a double bill of McVicar and Quadrophenia. All right, so there, there's a double bill for you as well. It's a good starting point to be a projectionist, that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, your yeah. your first definitely. week. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, I'm like you. I, I fell in love with it immediately. Yeah. I just loved it. It's on so many different levels. You know, we're going to talk about this. You know, you've got the horror element. You've got the comedy element. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty darn sure John Landis at some point had spent a part of his life in England because he nailed you know, so much of, you know, English culture at the time. Um, yeah, it, you often get these sort of American directors who do these movies where, you know, they're obviously all shot in Britain. I think Life Force is a similar deal, you know, where you're thinking, this is a big American production, but it's all shot in the UK and feels like a UK movie. Yeah. You know, um, it, 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 I suppose this could have been a British director and been like Hammer movie, really. But I think uh, you need someone from outside to actually hold a mirror up. I mean, you know, a very one of my favorite you know, moments of that is the unfriendliness of British pubs. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which, you know, I, I think has must have been going on for centuries because it still happens now. You know, you go into a pub that you don't know. Yeah. And it's I've, like I've, the slaughtered I've been, lamb. I've been in one. I've been yeah. in one. Me, me and my wife went into one once over in the Yorkshire Dills, and it was a case of we were staying in a cottage, and we said, let's have a walk down to the village. So we have to walk down this quite dark lane with a torch, and we get to the pub, and as soon as you walk in, just everybody stops and looks at you. Yep. And as I ordered the drinks, the guy next to me, oh, I couldn't quite see behind me, he does that thing where, like, you know, he kind of cracks all his fingers. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, you're, and you're sort of thinking, we're, we're going to die here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we live in a village here, and all we've got in the village are two pubs and a hairdresser's. And the hairdresser's is shut, so all we've got are two pubs. And we've been in the village 15 years now. And yeah. there's one called the Hoodner's Horse, and we go in there. It's not very often we go in there, and we only go in at lunchtime. Um, and it still happens. Conversation mm. stops. Everyone <laughs> watches you. You kind of like meekly walk round to a table because we're going to have something to eat. And when the girl comes along to ask what you want, you're practically whispering to, yeah. <laughs> to her. Yeah. because And very slowly, the conversation all starts back up again. You know, yeah. And every time it happens, I think of this blooming film you know <laughs> yeah uh, and another thing you know that's a a product of its time and you know i look back on now is you know uh, at this time when they were making the film london at the time soho was a pretty seedy place yeah yeah they hadn't got round to um you know cleaning it up for the tourists and the amount of these tiny teeny tiny porno cinemas that were practically mm. on every street there you know yeah, yeah, it, it's quite um, an interesting thing. I, I did see um, a page online which did a lot of um, location comparisons, um, mm. maybe it was a couple of years ago, which you know showed you the Leicester Square and um, you know some of the other places like the alleyways and stuff like that. And it was mm. quite interesting to see, uh, especially the Leicester Square, just how how it had. Uh, oh, was it Piccadilly? It's Piccadilly pop, Circus, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, Piccadilly Circus, how that had changed, um, yeah. you know, from from those, like, from where the little cinema was 
um, to what's there now. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it was one of these seedy little porn. It was an actual porno cinema, you know. Um, right. And yeah, they they went from Soho. They trickled down all the streets and ended up in Piccadilly. Oh, you wouldn't get that now. You wouldn't get a cinema like that in a tourist, a major tourist location like Piccadilly Circus no, now. But no. I think it's a Boots the Chemist or something like that now. You know, right. it's been, because I can remember walking. I used to go, um, you know, around Soho. There, you, you had a lot of secondhand bookshops. Yeah. down there you know and um and i used to go in there and, and did you ever go to it the first science fiction bookshop in london was called dark they were and golden eyed no but um a friend of mine always tells me about it and i do remember the adverts in starburst magazine yeah. you know that well there was the forbidden planet the mayor merchandising and the dark the were and golden eyed adverts yeah so, they always had brian lewis artworks for dark yeah. they were and golden eyed and they, yeah. it was down this seedy little alleyway called saint anne's court it was in and yeah you had to go past some a, a measure of a measure of how these cinemas were I only know, I must say, from walking past. I never went in. But you would walk in and immediately the foyer is this tiny little vestibule. You could see that. And there's your ticket. And, there, and then ticket desk. And then you had your kiosk with your Maltesers and stuff like that. And yeah. at the end, by the till, they also say it sold boxes of tissues. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. So, these yeah, movies, these movies certainly weren't weepies. <laughs> well, they we were weepies, but not in, in the accepted. Uh, let's no, move yeah. on. <laughs> let's move on. So this film, American Werewolf in London, Andrew, where where would you say it stands in um, your ratings on favorite werewolf films? Uh, oh, it's certainly up there in the top three, really. I mean, there's there's the Oliver Reed werewolf, which is a great film. I love that one. Um, you know, that that's a, a fantastic movie. And uh, Dog Soldiers, I really loved. The Howling, this. Um, not, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of much else, really. But, uh, you know, th this is certainly in the top probably two, of, you know, if not three. Hmm. Um, I'd have to probably have a good sit down, really, to sort of work out which, because you know, they all do something different. I mean, I, you know, I, I do like The Howling. It's a different type of movie. Um, with very similar special effects, but a completely different style of film. Uh, yeah. With 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 humour as well, obviously. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's just you know I, I don't even go with the word remake because there has been <laughs> talk talk of Max Landis remaking, yes. and I think even John Landis himself supposedly said you know it shouldn't be done. But no. um, I don't see how how you could capture the. You could tell the same story again, but there's no way you could capture the magic and, no. you know, the humor and just what this film actually has. Well, it did um, have a sequel, didn't it? And that shows you, you know, don't mess with it. You know? Tell you the truth. I projected the sequel. I never watched the sequel. Yeah, so well, I, I haven't got a clue really much about it. I know there was some CG werewolves in there, uh, but I haven't got really much of an idea what the sequel was about. I just know it was in Paris. Uh, yeah. And that's it. So I've, yeah, uh, you've done yourself a favour there, Andrew. Yeah, you really. Have. Yeah, yeah. I never bothered with it. No, I mean it's my favourite werewolf film, but I prefer the where the final full stage werewolf of the Howling. I love yeah. the werewolves in the Howling, but I yeah. prefer American Werewolf in London. If you could get if you could get the the werewolves of the Howling and put it in American Werewolf in London, yeah, that'd be brilliant. I I wholeheartedly agree with that because I think a lot of people do feel the same. Um, I think even Rick Baker himself said he'd preferred the sort of, you know, the, the stood up werewolf, but Landis did want something different. Mm, yeah. Um, but 
I, I do remember now. I've never really sort of. I don't know if this screenplay is available online or whatever. But Landis did write the sequel himself, and one thing I do remember was when he uh, presented it to the studio. It did go much more into the dream sequence to do with the werewolves and the Nazis, mm. um, and possibly the fact that I think uh, David's family was Jewish, um, and they did go down that route. And I think the studio just turned around and said, "No, no, no, we don't. Mm. This is a sequel. This is just not what we want to see and what, mm. what an audience wants to see." But he wanted to take it into a different avenue. Um, you know, and do something completely different. It sounds very much like what they tried to do with the second Robocop, um, you know, which was going to be, again, he gets blown up in the first few minutes and wakes up in the future, and it's a completely different story then. Yeah. The, the, the studio just obviously then turned around and said, no, we want more of the same. That's a typical studio mentality there, yeah. isn't it? But it's... whether that screenplay was ever just a pitch or a, you know, 10-page synopsis or... Uh, whether it was a full-fledged screenplay, I've never ever no, I've uh, never seen it checked online. But uh, you know, the logical thing, you know, you think, well, what would you do? Jenny Agatha's character's probably having a baby or whatever, you know, and mm. you know, the curse continues on somehow like that. Um, that that's what you'd probably do these days with a, a sequel, you know, very similar to the Fly sequel. Yeah, gotcha. Um, but no, just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Yeah. I know that he did say that one thing he wanted to do in the sequel. He said he'd go back to East Proctor and he said instead of the um, the dartboard, he said there'd be like a space invaders machine there or something, <laughs> or like or possibly like an electronic darts machine, just to show that you know the time has moved on. And I gotcha. think it was a bit of an investigation. It might have been possibly David's sister um, coming from America to find out what what actually happened. Right. So there was much more the stuff to do with East Proctor and her investigating the, the background as well. Um, yeah, but it never happened, and let's hope it never yeah. does. <laughs> no, it, it's too late now, you know, yeah. to, for it to ever happen. But, you know, it would be interesting to see what, what could have been, possibly. But as a standalone movie, it works fine. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. All right, well, we're going to go on to our first clip. We're doing, we're doing um, David and Jack's special effects sequences separately. So we're going to go on to a clip from David's first transformation. So let's go. You saw me standing alone. Jesus Christ! Without a Black God! Oh, 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 oh. Ah! 
So the sequence starts, um, it's in the evening, David's at home in the flat, um, and we've got the Blue Moon music playing. Yeah. Uh, do you know about how, you know, John Landis, he wanted various songs, but uh, for one reason or another, some of them were used and some of them weren't? Yeah, didn't he have a bit of trouble actually just licensing some? I think it's one of them things where some were cheaper than others, weren't they? You know, so, that was so part of it. Um, but actually. also, he wanted to use one of my favourite songs from when I was little, uh, Moon Shadow by Cat Stevens. Right, okay. But he refused because he had just um, you know, converted to Islam. Right. And he didn't want anything to do with uh, uh, anything supernatural. Right. So he refused permission. I don't know if that was actually meant to be in this sequence. Yeah. Um, but I think this music, you know, the, the gentleness of it, the lullaby nature of it, you know, <laughs> brilliantly contrasts with what we're just about to see. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing I did notice just as the sequence starts and he obviously says, you know, I'm burning up and he starts tearing off his T-shirt on the Blu-ray. You can actually see the beads of sweat on his body. Mm. Um, which I don't think I even spotted on, certainly wouldn't have spotted them on the VHS and certainly didn't, even, I don't think I'm even on the DVD, but you can really see they've obviously been spritzing him down and he's really oh, genuinely right. sweaty looking. I had um, noticed and I ser- I had never noticed in the cinema because I was always watching it from the back yeah. row, you know, yeah. so uh, yeah, and no, I've never got that close to the screen. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can certainly see it on the Blu-ray as he starts tearing his t-shirt off and that and he, he turns around and you can see his back's really sort of drenched with sweat. Because um, I was I was going to question the line I'm burning up. Why does he yeah. you know say out loud I'm burning up? But you know I guess if you could clear have clearly seen the sweat, you wouldn't have needed that line at all. Yeah, um, as you said, you, you certainly you know probably at the cinema VHS and you know even on DVD I never seen it, but on the Blu-ray I'm sat there and I thought oh yeah it's quite quite sweaty looking you know for that sequence mm, yeah. uh, so that does make sense. But yeah, probably didn't really need it, but. Um, but it's a great way to start it. It's just like reading that book, isn't it? You know, all of a sudden it's yeah, like, it's like, it's like somebody's like, turned a light switch on. Suddenly yeah. he's got a massive headache. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm burning up and doesn't yeah. know what really to do, you know, but I like the way they've decided he's got to take his trousers off. I, I guess that's like to, you know, stop a, some sort of like Hulk moment where yeah, you, yeah. you can't have a four legged uh, werewolf with Hulk style ripped trousers on its back legs. Can no. you? And it was probably a case if you could have had them sort of tear as the legs expanded or whatever, but uh, it, it might have looked a bit naff, really. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, I, I assume that was it a set or was it actually inside of a real flat? This I'm not too sure. No, it's, I, it's a set because of what's coming up later, where, yeah, yeah. where you've got the full thing on the floor. We'll talk about that in in behind the scenes. But right. um, yeah, and he takes his trousers off, and I'd just like to say, you know, um, um, he had to do it with his back to camera because as you said earlier you know david's uh character is jewish yeah but um the actor he hadn't been circumcised so yeah. th- there was no yeah. full frontal <laughs> nudity yeah he, he just kind of turns just at the right moment doesn't he as the, <laughs> he does. you know, as the trousers are removed just so you don't see anything and have any trouble with the senses or anything but yeah they could have done like an austin powers type thing and had a pot plant strategically placed <laughs> could, or something like that you could have had that mickey mouse figure you see later there you on, go <laughs> so we cut away from him doing his trousers and um he starts to see his fingers stretching yeah and I, I i was watching that i'm not sure are we seeing that as a composite shot or is that all in camera is that is that um the actor I, and yeah, the fake I, I hands get, i get the feeling up? everything was there and then i don't think anything was ever comped in uh yeah, and it's a really good hand as well. I think on the um, the documentary, you actually see them casting the arm, and they did it as a, a one-piece cast. What they did is they, uh, they encased his entire arm in alginate and then sort of done the plaster, and then he managed to literally squeeze his hand out. Mm. So they've got this perfect cast of his hands without any seam lines. Mm. Um, and that's what they use, yeah, to kind of extend the thing, you know, so it looks so good, but it's the fact it's got all the hairs punched in and everything, you know. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, because you get a reaction shot from David, and then you cut back, and there, um, um, you know, it's a noticeably hairier hand. Yeah. Once yeah. we cut back, and and the skin is a lot darker now. Yeah. Um, and and this is the one bit that's always bugged me is the fact that it's only the one hand that's changing, mm. because he. He's obviously, you know, uh, he's really looking at this one hand that's transforming, and then I think it cuts to the next shot, and the, the second hand comes into view, and it's just his normal hand. Yes. And yet, I think straight after that, he drops to the floor, and both hands are fully transformed. Mm. And it was a case of, yeah, really, I know he's, I mean, he could have still just been looking at one hand transforming and had the other one already kind of transformed. It, it seems yeah. a bit weird he would only half transform. Yeah. Um, I think part of part of this is Rick Baker said that they didn't have any rehearsal time. They were on a real tight schedule. Yeah, so yeah. when they appeared on set to do a, you know, one of these stages, it it was done straight away. There was no rehearsal. It it had to work first time. Yeah, and I think Landis was very much just a case of uh, yeah, that's fine. Let's get on with the next shot and I think Rick was a little bit sort of perturbed that, you know, they weren't given enough time to set up. He does say he has got regrets and he looks back, particularly uh, some of the later stages that we're coming up to soon. um, When you have got David almost completely transformed, he looks at them now and he winces somewhat because they just didn't have any time to do anything else. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you what I mean, you know, this is what it's known for. It's the fact that it is literally just in in room lighting and it's a really brave choice that because... Mm. I've worked, um, you know, with with latexes and uh, gelatins and silicones before, and lighting doesn't half affect them. You know, you can you can take it from um, sort of a normal lighting in a say like with a, a bulb to a fluorescent, and it will actually completely change the look of it. Um, and I've certainly seen pictures of 
people like Freddy Krueger um, on set, and then you know where Robert Englund's just in the car park, and the makeup looks dreadful. Mm. You know it, it, the the lighting. You know, if if this was lit like the Howling with very subdued lighting uh, and key lights, blue fill, it could have you know ma- made it look a totally different sequence. But to mm. actually say, let's just have the room light on, that's a brave move. Yeah, it's a brave move to do it like that. It's a brave move to have still have the music going. Yeah, you know? and we ha- are having cuts, obviously, but we never cut away from this scene. We're watching this. There is one cut coming up, which we'll mention, but. Um, we're, mm. we're basically focusing on David all the way through, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and there's, you know, it, it. I think Rick Baker, you know, he'd always said he'd love to have done the ultimate transformation sequence where he kind of a, he transforms in one fell swoop, you know, which mm. with, without the aid of digital technology, you couldn't really do. So, you know, it always was going to rely on cutaways, you know, to various parts, ears, you know, mm. hands, hair coming out, things like that. Uh, but you know, um, it, I don't know. Would, would it work if we just sort of seen him transform in one fell swoop in one shot? I think we've seen things like that in Van Helsing later on, and it just looks quite yeah. awful. No, I, I mean you know, a, a, a lot of the reason why this sequence is so well remembered is is the fact that you know everything we've just been talking about. But you feel for the guy; he's in he's in an awful lot of pain. This takes a long time you know, to transform, yeah. and he's screaming all the way through it. Yeah, because he's he's like it's it his bone structure's physically changing under his skin, isn't it? It's cracking and it's splitting. I was say, this is another thing: the sound effects. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, are contributing to it as well. Um, now we've got—he's got his fully grown fake hand he, that he's holding up, and you can see he's got a hairy mane running yeah. down the middle of his back. Yeah, um, and he falls to the floor, and we get a front view of him, um, partly hidden by the settee, of obviously, you know, a yeah. strategic place settee to hide, you know, what's going on special effects wise behind, and he's very hairy now, mm. uh, with his head sticking out and big fake teeth. Yeah. Um, and we cut away to the ankles growing. Yeah, like, again, that's a really nice shot, the way the kind of back of the ankle sort of cracks and expands and sort of skinnies up in a way, isn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's on his hands and knees now. And, again, in amongst all this, you've still got a little bit of comedy. You've got the whole didn't mean to call you meatloaf, Jack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he manages to uh, get out during the transformation uh we get an extreme close-up of hairs sprouting out of the skin then don't we yeah yeah like sort of wisping out yeah yeah because that's needed because then we need to cut back to him and he's got his his spine and shoulder blades are growing under the skin yeah which you know um I, i would assume all of this stuff was shot in its entirety in that location i don't think there was any cutaways i don't think there was anything shot back uh, you know as a as a filler hmm. you know I, I get the feeling that all of these shots from what i remember from things like cinefex and fangori were all shot in it their entirety in the set location yeah uh, the lighting always matches perfectly yeah, doesn't yeah. it I, I don't recall reading anything about anything you know getting back to the states and thinking we're missing a close-up let's do one so now, it's not a cantina scene, is it? No, Where you have no. to do reshoots and pickups or anything like that. No, it was all done. Yeah, so, so, the, so you know, obviously Baker and his guys had to have everything really with them, you know. Hmm. 
The next bit, I've always thought looks very odd. Um, he's got his extremely hairy body, but his head is still unchanged. Yeah, he, yeah. He's just he's just got his false teeth in. That looks a bit odd. Everything's happening on happening except for his head. Yeah. Um, and then he rolls over onto his back, and he's got that fright wig on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then we get a full body shot, and it's this is. Basically, the floor is a stage, isn't it? You've got yeah, uh, yeah. he's being operated from underneath. You've got the full body. Yeah, of, he's, of, he's he's his arms and his sort of shoulders and head are out, and everything else is essentially puppeteered, isn't it? I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you've got uh, Norton's head is sticking up through the floor, essentially. Mm. It, it 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 it's not dissimilar to you know what's going to happen a couple of years later with the Norris scene that we talked about on yeah. John Carpenter's The Thing, where you've got the actual head coming up through the floor or the table mm. and and matching everything that's above the table. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I mean, uh, there have been what three, four members of crew underneath with probably mm. rods, just moving the legs, moving the torso, moving the ankles, just mm. with uh, some, some sticks probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But enough to give it motion. Yeah. If I've got one problem with this scene, it's coming up now, which is when he does a terrible look to the camera he breaks the fourth wall and looks straight yeah. at us and reaches towards us. And it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like he's asking for help in a way. But I, yeah, it, he's it, kind it, of pleading, isn't he? Yeah, it, it is odd that he looks kind of at the camera there. I know what you at, mean. At no other time in the film does anybody do that. You yeah. Know, it's just in this one piece. Yeah, it, it's not like he's looking at anything else. It's not like he's looking at a photograph of the Jenny Agatha character or anything like that. He's just staring straight at the camera. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, he, he flips over onto his front. Yeah. Um, and that's when we do get a cutaway. It's the only time we ever cut away from what's going on. And it's to Mickey mouse. Yeah. Just, just sat there <laughs> like standing a, there smiling. Yeah. With his arms at these sides, like a little sort of soft toy, squeezy dog toy. It's one of those it? bendy yeah. ones that you had in the seventies. They, I, I remember we had them when we were little and you know, eventually the wire inside would snap and stick out the side and you'd have like a staple yeah. sticking out of the elbow or something. <laughs> Le- it'd lethal. become a lethal weapon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we cut to Mickey, we cut back and that's when we get the snout and the ears growing. Um, yeah, we get. The, I think the eyes spring open, don't the first. I think we we get that kind of shot. The eyes springing open. Yeah, and I was wrong. That starburst back cover that I was mentioning. It's that moment. It's not one of the Nazi werewolves. It's when he opens his eyes and he's got those fantastic contact lenses. Yeah, hasn't he? yeah. You know, and and I always think the muzzle um, looks a bit like. Um, <clears throat> that's a actually Andrew. That's a film we got to talk about sometime. Rawhead Rex. Oh yeah, yeah. You know he's got he's got like a stunted muzzle, much like you know the mm. Rex in Rawhead Rex. So um, yeah. yeah, that's a terrific look just there. Yeah. And then, and then go on. No, no, no. After you. I was going to say then. Obviously, you know. Uh, well, I mean the contact lenses. Um, you know, I think they the the kind of sort of help sell it. You know, uh, but then we just get that first bit where the, the mouth starts to stretch, hmm. uh, which is like unlike anything we'd ever seen sort of before, really, no. in, a, in a movie. I don't think that I can recall anything where you know you've seen a creature do that. Um, the only it, thing that that reminds me of, and it's not, it's not like it. But whenever I see it, I always think of uh, the Company of Wolves. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, but it's it's not nothing. I don't know why, but that always just reminds me of the Company of Wolves. But there was, you go. Was that that 
That was after this, though, was it? I think I think they were being made sort of like concurrently, weren't they? Right. Okay. Yeah, it, it must be eighty-two, eighty. Yeah. It's one of those things, it, it happens from time to time, where you have films being made exactly the same time that are very similar, but they've got no knowledge of each other, and, you know, that one's not ripping the other one off. Yeah, know? because, because the, obviously the American Wolf and the Howling did have knowledge of each other, because Baker was working kind of on both at one point. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, with, with Company Wolves, it was a low-budget British production, wasn't it? So, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, forgive the pun, it was a totally different beast. Right, okay. Company Wolves was actually 1984. Was it 84? 84, yeah, I've just had it. I would have said it was 81, 82. No, oh, right, okay, forget eight, that then. Eight, 84, yeah, so it was okay. a, a good few years after. All right, scrap so. that then. All right, um, we, we then get a pass along the fully transformed body um, yeah. as this sequence ends. It ends just before we see its head, doesn't it? Yeah, we kind of see almost, again, like a thick mane of hmm. fur, but we don't quite see the final thing do we no we do see the final thing i mean we're not going to talk about that sequence today yeah. but it's down in the london underground that we've yeah. finally and that's in long shot isn't it yeah and it's a very very quick scene so even though you now know he's turned into a werewolf you don't actually see the werewolf for the majority of the film yeah just kind of there's a howl and i think it just cuts back to a an outside shot that's right it? yes yeah the, All right, the, so the, the bit where the first stretches, though, I was going to say, is the, the 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 front view and the side view work great, but there's there's kind of almost like a front on shot um, mm. of kind of like the the teeth open and the tongue moving around, which I always thought looked a little bit weaker than the rest. Mm. I don't know whether it was just the angle of that uh, shot of the face. Mm. It's it's slightly low down, and it's like looking sort of almost not fully face on, but slightly you know to to one side, but. Out of all of the angles that chose to shoot it from, I always remember thinking, oh, that looks a little bit rubbery, yeah. you know, that, I, that, that bit. I think it's, again, you know, they didn't have much time, and it's like, right, John mm. Landis is like, right, okay, done, yeah. cut, it, print, move on, you know? It does make you wonder how many cameras they had set up, um, you know, and just what other, what other angles they had, you know. Um, mm. It was mm. a quite, quite a small set, so they probably don't have a space to put a lot of cameras in there. No. Uh, it is very confined. I mean, you look at the the photos uh, behind the scenes. That, that that's a cramped mm. flat. Once everybody's in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's the sequence over. Um, yeah. As as you say, we do a cutaway, so we'll go on to behind the scenes. Yeah. I, one thing I do remember about this was I think this is the first time Rick Baker actually had a crew. Um. You know, he he'd obviously he he. Things like Star Wars, he was part of a team, but I think this is the first time he'd actually taken a crew with him. And this was uh, Tom Hester, um, Steve Johnson, Bill Sturgeon. Um, I think there was about six of them um, that yeah. he took. Um, and, you know, they, these were all like way younger than them, these guys. Uh, you know, Baker, Baker kind of was, you know, he wasn't an old man or anything by this time, but he was he's older than them. And I think, you know, he was kind of their sort of guardian, you know, sort of their father figure, really. Uh, and he realised, he, you know, because he was coming to the UK, that he would need people with him. Yes, um, yeah. So so he took this core group of people who, mm. you know, I think many of them went on to work with him on Greystock and, you know, um, Bigfoot and Henderson's and other films later on. So he, he did uh, build up a friendship with most of these guys, you know, long yeah, long and, uh, Yeah, and as you say, Steve Johnson, you know, he went on to success uh, yeah, with by his himself own, as with well. his own company, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, and and again, 
you, you mentioned the, the the one picture I do remember um, from probably the Cinefex. It's the bit where the spine is growing, and it's a very weird shot when you see it. It's almost like a sawhorse, and mm. they've just got the kind of the back and the head uh, resting over it with the with the uh, bladders and stuff. So it's you're literally looking down at it, but when you actually see it from the side shot, it's just like a wooden frame. It's quite a weird thing that they yeah. made for that downward shot. You know, it really destroys the illusion of it when you see it. You think, oh, wow, was that really all they used? Yeah. Um, but- and, and, and again, I mean, um, Rick Baker had, has said, you know, he's just disappointed that, you know, they gave him a great amount of time, you know, arranging it, preparing for it. But then uh, John Landis only required one take. And, uh, and so, yeah, they, he, he considered that they had wasted their time. Um, until we then saw the film with an audience, yeah, um, yeah. Um, that then applauded. Yeah, uh, you know. I think B- Baker's had trouble like that in the past. And the one film I do re- recall him talking about was uh, Starman, and he said, you know, he uh, for the transformation sequence for that, he was given obviously the uh, the baby, and he said that the, the we, they were starting to use uh, materials like gelatins and silicons, and he said they did this fantastic baby for that, which had all the kind of um, internal veins and said, you know, mm. they, they did all our own test shots back at Baker's studio, mm. which said looked amazing. But they said when they actually get to set, uh, I don't know if it was Dean Cundy who was lighting that uh, for for Carpenter on Starman, but he said he just literally kind of just split it how they wanted to, and Baker was saying, no, no, it's got all this translucency um, to mm. it. You know, if we light it right, it'll look amazing. And he said they just shot it how they wanted, and he said it doesn't look half as good as it did on the tests. And it's probably the same with this, you know, Baker probably, if it was up to Baker, I suppose if if Baker was the Harry Harrison where he could actually control how the sequences were shot and, you know, light, lighten himself and stuff like that, we would have got probably a different sequence. Um, mm. Whether it would have been a better sequence is, you know, hard to tell because maybe Baker would have done it differently and it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Um, well, so, we'll never know, will no, we? No, no, but uh, it would be interesting to, to sort of see, you know, how how he would have lit it himself. Um, yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned earlier, you know, the howling. Um, they were both in production at roughly the same time. Um, yeah. John Landis was trying to get the film made and Rick Baker was planning what he was going to do. But it seems that he'd become tired of waiting and decided to use what he'd been planning on the howling. Then John Landis said, oh, I've got funding for this. Let's go and do it. Um, and kind of like, from what I can gather, he kind of like, you know, I don't know if bullied's the right word, but persuaded Rick Baker to switch. And that's when, you know, Rob Bottin took over on the howling and Rick Baker went off to do an American wealth in London. Yeah. Um, I can't remember whether it was an interview I, I read with Baker where he said, you know, Landis had had this planned from way back when they were doing schlock. You know, he'd always mm. talked about this. Movie. In fact, I'm fairly sure that there might even be sort of talk that when uh, Landis was over in Europe doing Kelly's, Kelly's Heroes, Heroes. He, yeah. actually, he actually had the idea for this then. He, I, I read somewhere, I couldn't find it for research for this, but he, he heard or learned of, yeah, European folklore about the werewolves. And while he was out there, you know, yeah. um, you know, doing Kelly's Heroes and that gave him the notion to do a werewolf film sometime. Yeah, so it was quite an old thing. But I think what happened with, obviously, Baker and Spotting was a case of uh, once he'd said to Joe Dante, look, I've kind of committed myself to Landis, um, but I'm leaving you kind of in, you know, the next best pair of hands I possibly can. 
Mm. Um, you know, my my sort of my apprentice, really. You know, this, this you know, I've taught this guy kind of everything that I sort of know, um, and he knows a lot of stuff himself. So, you know, um, I'm heading off to the UK, and uh, mm. you know, I'll I'll leave you in the the capable hands of Rob Boyne. Um But yeah, I th- I think some of the stuff, you know, c- certainly was developed for for American Werewolf which he then utilised on the Howling which then kind of almost backfires because both films use the same sort of techniques of the stretch you know what's called the, yes. cha- the change your head and um, you know had had that not happened you know would, what would the Howling's transformation been like you know would would Botting have had the thing to do the change your head without Rick already showing mm-hmm. him how that works yeah uh, you know the bladders the change your heads th- things like that so yeah I mean, a holdover from, you know, that Rick Baker on The Howling to Rick Baker on American Werewolf in London was he wanted to do, just like Rob Bodkin did on The Howling, he wanted to have a two-legged werewolf. Yeah. But it was John Landis who said, uh, no, he wanted apparently a four-legged hound from hell is -hmm. what he wanted. And I'm thinking maybe if Rick Baker had got his way and came up with a two-legged werewolf, the two films would have been, you know, compared even more. Yeah. Yeah, design-wise, at least, you know. Yeah, but um, you've got like great techniques as well there, like the uh, we mentioned about the hair growing, and that was supposedly just one of those reverse shots. Mm. You know, they threaded the hair through the uh, the foam latex or whatever they're using, and literally pulled it back pulled in. It. Yeah, and then in, in uh, you know, uh, we we get the reverse shot of that, and it looks like it's creeping out, growing out. Uh, so yeah, great great little techniques like that. Um, one thing I was going to mention, I know we're not covering uh, the, the second transformation, but you do have that shot in the second transformation of the, the hand where the fingernails are literally growing mm. kind of out, which is the same hands that he used later on in um, in Thriller for Michael Jackson. That's right, yeah. Uh, but it's it's weird how the second transformation is almost not the same as the first. Mm. You know, it, it, you, you do get that kind of shot where the fingernails are like erupting from, from you know, the, the hand. Um, and you think, well, yeah, yeah, it's a bit weird, you know. Why, why did he decide to go for a, a different hand for the second transformation? You know, um, maybe you could say from that you saying there, maybe you could say that each time David transformed, he transformed it into a different style of werewolf. So maybe when those eyes opened and you did have the short muzzled contact lens, maybe that was the full face of his first transformation and the one that we see that dead at the end is like the second one. Maybe if he had lived, maybe the third one would have looked completely different as well. You could explain it away like that, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Um, But, you know, like we said, I've said, you know, it's it's incredibly brave to do what they did just with that lighting and I think it does work. It does hold up. Um, and these days it would certainly be done probably digitally um, you know it, I, th- I think if you could do the same transformation now with the same sort of techniques but you could then digitally remove rods and wires and operators you could have the best of both worlds and I think that's what he originally planned to do on the Wolfman film he did with Benicio Del Toro Yeah. but then again Hollywood sort of shat all over him you know um, and he didn't quite get what he wanted there either, you know, and I think that's why mm. he become quite disgruntled with the industry of, you know, pushing the boat out for a lot of these films and then finding out your work's been, you know, utilised badly or not as it should have been. Yeah. And I don't blame him. I yeah. I don't blame him. Um, I saw mention that Rick Baker thought that bladder effects 
that had formed the basis of altered states and the howling, uh, he thought they would become passe quite quickly. And that's why he went with more actual physical changes rather than, you know, uh, any bladder effect types. Yeah, uh, because obviously in the Howling, when we see Eddie Quist transforming, he is a lot of bladder effects, isn't there? There's lots mm, of kind of... There's an awful lot. <laughs> pulsating under the skin. And, and again, we'd had them in scanners. And like you said, we'd had them in altered states. Um, you know, D- Dick Smith was kind of the master of doing those. Um, so, yeah, I can probably see why uh, there isn't any bladder effects as such. You know, It's not like we see sort of David's arm, kind of the veins all start to erupt or right. anything, or like his hands sort of swelling up and things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, um, the snout protrusion, uh, that was the last shot to be filmed yeah. uh, with, with the animatronic head. And in fact, it was the last shot of the production and it was done after the wrap up party, uh, the wrap party. Right. So they <laughs> they had actually had their um, uh, the finished party and then did that afterwards. Yeah. And I think there was two separate heads as well, because I think what you've got there is the limitations of the material, if I remember right. You've got foam latex, which has got like a, a, an element of stretchability. Mm. But it hasn't got probably the stretchability of something like the modern silicons or the gelatins these days. Mm. So I think they could only ram this kind of sort of jaw with this, you know, with the teeth and stuff through and stretch it so far before the foam latex actually did look like it was stretching. And then might tear. And And then might tear. So I think they actually had two separate heads. I think they have the initial one where the jaw stretches so far. Mm. And then there was a second head for the sort of more extended version yeah, and again, that, right. that, that that was you know it, with modern materials, you could probably do you know something like more in one shot. But uh, yeah, I think yeah, foam latex and stuff like that would have just probably torn off, folded, or done something. Yeah, which, which would have looked probably fairly naff. But um, yeah, you know, it's great what they, they, they did with the materials they had. Yeah, which leads us nicely into the rating for this sequence, Andrew. Um, what do you reckon? I'm always a bit like this with the ratings because if it's a, it's for a sequence, it's a fantastic, memorable yes. sequence, and it's got to be sort of like a ten. But then for the technicalities, you know, I'd probably knock it down to probably nine because there's here's a couple of shots that you know maybe just don't you know work, and you know, uh, so I'll say nine. Ditto. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying the same. Yeah, yeah. It's just astounding for its time, and it still holds up now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. And Let's I say, you know, nine, even, even on the Blu-ray, um, you know, uh, which you think would really emphasize any kind of, like, you know, fault in the prosthetics, it, it still does work. Um, and I think even anybody who's young who watched this, I think, you know, you can't help but be amazed by it. I don't think mm. you... It's it's not like one of those sort of monster movies where, you know, you look back and you think, oh, that isn't that quaint, you know, that that probably was, like, a good effect at the time. I think it still is a good effect. Hmm. Um, and I think anybody watching it now would still think, that's really well done, you know. And, hmm. Yeah, um, no, it certainly does hold up. Yeah. All right, let's see about the next one. Next well, up, we've got the many faces of Jack. So let's go into a clip. Okay. Can I have a piece of toast? Get the fuck out of here, Jack. Thanks a lot. I can't take this. Am I asleep now, awake or what? I realize I don't look so hot, David. But I thought you'd be glad to see me. David! You're hurting my feelings. 
hurting your feelings? Has it occurred to you that it might be unsettling to see you rise from the grave to visit me? Sorry to be upsetting you, David, but I had to come. Aren't you supposed to be buried someplace in New York? Yeah. Your parents came to my funeral. I was surprised at how many people came. Well, why should you be surprised? You were a very well-liked person. Yeah, I was, wasn't I? Well, I liked you. Debbie Klein cried a lot. Oh, God, am I asleep now or what? So, so, you know what she does? She's so grief-stricken. She runs to find solace in Mark Levine's bed. Mark Levine? An asshole. Life mocks me even in death. Um, before we get on to, you know, mm. the many stages of Jack, I, I'd just like to say I think what helps so much in the in these is the chemistry between the two actors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's just terrific. Now, are you aware who uh, the executives actually wanted to play David and Jack? No, no. Yeah, it was meant... <laughs> It was meant to be Dan Aykroyd for oh, David, right. okay. yeah, and and John Belushi um, for Jack. Right. I've not, that would I've have not been a different film. I've not heard yeah, that yeah, and it, it was ja- it was John Landis who said, "No, we need unknowns." Yeah. And I think I'm not sure. I think this was actually Griffin Dunn's first film. Right. Okay. Right. So I, I, I'll tell you what gets me about this sequence. It's uh, you know again we were talking about kind of Britishness um, earlier on of um, you know this sort of movie and it's the sort of the typical kind of like that that uh, guy who brings him his uh, his breakfast. You know, you're talking about the Indian guy. Yeah, Good the, morning. Yeah, the Indian guy. And it, you know, you really feel like you're watching some kind of just typical British movie from the 1970s or 80s. It could almost be a Carry On movie. Type, you know, sort of thing. Absolutely, you know, he he's not only spent some time in England. I think he's spent some time in hospital as well because that is yeah <laughs> that is indicative. Uh, and this first stage, um, um, the sequence starts with David in bed and um, having his breakfast. And there's a great comment there on British hospital food: the way yeah. he sticks his spoon in yeah. the porridge and it just stays upright. That's right. You yeah, know, it just stands up, doesn't it? He, yeah, no, that that wasn't needed. You know, this is a werewolf film. Yeah. It's I love the humour in this that you can just have a tiny little throwaway little gag like that. Yeah. I think he know? I think he brings him sort of like some porridge, some toast, some orange juice, and uh, whatever is under that platter which i think might be some it's bacon bacon and eggs and stuff yeah. yeah and he sort of says you know good good hospital food or whatever and yeah, then, yeah then he sticks his spoon in the porridge and it's like sort of cement yeah i mean i i, I meant to have said earlier you know when jack's in um, sorry david is in the flat there's another comment on british culture at the time is there's just nothing on tv he flicks through the three <laughs> channels right. you've got darts on one thing haven't yeah. you and and just some oh yeah no no he he, he was tuned in john landis but yeah. anyway he, he yeah he, he's got this like resigned look on his face as he looks as the spoon sticking out of his porridge and he looks up and there's jack yeah and it's just and, like and he's just there <laughs> yeah there's, there's, it's not like there's even like uh, he, he goes for a jump on that one, is it? He's just no. he's just stood there across the like the side of the room. You would have a jump now. You'd at the very least have a, a jarring bit of music. Yeah. Um, but he's just there, and what does he say? Can I have a bit of toast? Yeah, can I have a bit of toast? Yeah. <laughs> and he looks terrific. Um, the, the the makeup here. I mean, you know, if if you've got like a torn throat, a slash throat, you know, you can do it relatively easy but rick baker there are layers upon layers upon yeah. layers going on there aren't there well i 
I did a, a, a slash throat makeup the other night myself on a you know yeah, low, on low budget film, and you know, to sort of one thing I thought of, you know, when you're doing that, I, I mean, this is obviously a, a cutthroat, but I did try to put like a, a little bit of the windpipe in there mm. because that's what I always remember from Rick Baker's is the fact you can see like the windpipe, yeah, um, and it's just. I think a lot of people remember the face, but when it's when you look at the sort of the, the top of the chest as well, how how yeah. torn that is. Um, th- there's one thing, which you know it, it does make you wonder whether you ever planned with this. Is uh, you know that the scratches across the face have kind of conveniently missed the eye. Mm. It does make you wonder whether you know that they ever had any uh, thing of having the eye kind of gouged or missing, or whether mm. they just thought keeping the the kind of the eyes as character. Yes. Um, I think it's that. I think, I think it is quite that. good. I suppose if you put your hand on your face and you sort of pull it down and you think, well, yeah, you probably claw and, yeah, you know, yeah. scratch scratch across the face and the cheeks and that, but you probably could miss the eye. And it was more yeah. like ripping at his neck as well. So, Yeah, I mean, like you said just there, you know, it's not just his neck, it's almost his shoulder blade area. And those each separate piece of that latex must have been so thin because it almost looks like they've gouged out Griffin Dunn's actual body because it seems to go down much further than it could possibly go down. Yeah, I'm sure in the Cinefix, again, there might possibly be like a prototype makeup that I think Baker even applied to one of his assistants originally. Yeah, I've Um, got that photo. I'm going to put it on the Facebook page. Yeah, which is interesting, but it looks so much better on Griffin Dunn. And I mean, and everybody remembers that one little flap of skin. I was going to say that little dangly bit that wobbles backwards and forwards. Yeah, it's just like, it sort of draws your attention, doesn't it? You can't take your eyes off it, can you? Yeah. (laughs) And I I, I don't know whether that was... uh, foam latex or whether it was something else like gelatin or whatever they were using but uh, yeah it, it looks great it's great this is my favorite scene of the whole film yeah. you know yeah. and it is because of these guys you know it's the way that it's the humor in it it is their chemistry it is the special effects again in bright fluorescent lighting yeah um again, and again to get away with such a complex makeup and just have it in a in a room like that yeah and not and yeah. not, not be in a graveyard or not be in anything spooky with mist it's just like yeah. oh my god and it's the dialogue as well, you know, the whole David, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> yeah, and, and and about the funeral and about how you know, sort of De- Debbie yeah. Cla- Debbie Klein was in tears or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can't I can't quote too much of that because my children are around at the moment. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and and, and one of my favourite lines is, uh, "You ever talk to a corpse? It's yeah. boring." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, no, it's, it's brilliant. And what's good about it? I mean, it's like a movie as it goes. You're thinking, is this is this real? Is it just in his mind? You know, he kind of mm. sort of says, you know, the supernatural, it's all real. You know, it's, yeah. you think, are these, are these people just genuinely walking the earth? Yeah. You know, what, what, what's going on? If somebody walks in at that point, what do they say? Just David talking to himself or, you know? Yeah. It's much like, isn't it? Marley's ghost mm. in the Christmas Carol, yeah. you know, appears just to, to Scrooge, you know, yeah, but it, and and again, very similar. You, you know, Marley is is cursed to walk the earth for eternity. You know, yeah, um, yeah. So so this is our first stage uh, makeup. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna zip forward a bit further down the film, um, and David's in the bathroom. Yeah. And I was trying to think that the old closed mirror door trick. Yeah. Of how he appears. 
was that a cliche by then or do you think that was no, still quite no I think that a, was a jump scare. probably one of the first times I'd sort of seen that happen and that is a genuine good jump isn't it you know what I mean it is that, that, that's a, a, again it doesn't rely on any music it's just purely the click click and shut of the mirror and him jumping yeah. again uh, I've not seen the new uh, movie of it, but a lot of people have said to me it does rely heavily on those sort of like music cues to make you jump. Mm. Um, you know, with- so you know something's coming. Yeah, you know, um, but here it's just David getting ready for bed. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what's so good about it as a movie. I, I think you know it, it. It it's almost like a drama, sort of uh, without being a horror movie. It's you know you. Can you hear the dog barking in the background? No, can't hear it oh, at right, all. Okay, no. that's that's good because I can. <laughs> even even though I'm kind of like um, you know in my attic, there's a there's a dog barking in the background. Right, it's not on the roof. <laughs> it's not on the roof. I hope not. All right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, so there he is. There's Jack. The wounds are exactly the same, although now he's all green, isn't he? Yeah, he's starting to sort of deteriorate, and um, yes. you, you know it's. Um, it's it's a weird thing because um, you're thinking even though he's like undead, he's actually uh, uh, he appears to be this kind of manifestation in possibly David's mind. He's decaying, hmm. you know. And you're thinking, is he there then or what? You know, because he's just miraculously appeared and he just seems to miraculously disappear. Yeah. But he's decaying, and you think, uh, you know, talking about then moving on to the next stage, it's like. How, how does he eventually just disappear? Does he just crum- yes. crum- crumble? What to, will he be? Just be dust? Yeah, will he a just cloud of dust that comes? You know, yeah. because but uh, by the next stage he's becoming more skeletal, isn't he? So you know, does he just yeah. eventually fade away and become nothing? So I don't know. Uh, well, we we'll never know. No, but yeah, it's great. They go, they go through to the room. And I think the Mickey Mouse makes another appearance. The hello, David, sort of thing he says with it. That is, yeah. Again, it's the humour. It's not just the hello, David. It's the way he picks it up and makes it wave. Yeah. As well. I like the way he, I like the way he looks in at Jenny Agatha as well, as if to say, "Oh, you've, you've struck it lucky there," sort of thing, haven't you? Sort of. Well, he does. He says, doesn't he? he goes a nurse, her. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you've got the humour in it, but. I like the lighting in this scene because mm. the lighting is now mm. quite subdued when they go through into the living room and yeah. it makes Jack both sinister and humorous. Yeah, and I also like the, um, you know, the, the jacket he's wearing, like the blood's almost become black in this. It's become like yes. congealed and dried and, you know, it's not like the fresh blood like we've seen earlier on. It's 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 like, you know, much more of a, of a zombie sort of character, isn't it? Yeah. In this? Um, I mean, uh, it's uh, weird because you wouldn't sort of say he was as uh, you know. I wouldn't never refer to 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 Jack as a, a zombie. He's more of he's undead. Hmm. He's more of a, a ghost or a spirit. I would never say oh, he's a zombie because he's not. He's he can talk. He can rationalise. He can. He, oh, he's still Jack. Isn't yeah, he? yeah, he's yeah. Totally he hasn't Jack. Come, he, he just happens to be dead. As, uh, just some kind of like you know lumbering kind of uh, you know flesh eating monster. Yeah, yeah, he's he's still Jack, and he he knows he's Jack and. He doesn't like it, you know. He doesn't like. You what know what you were. You know what you were saying earlier about you know each stage. You know where would he end? You know if each time he comes back, yeah. Um, you know he decomposes a bit more. That would have kind of put the kibosh on Randall and Hopkirk, wouldn't it? If uh, Marty's ghost yeah. did that every time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that thought's just occurred to me. Um, I like this bit in this scene where he leans forward and when he does the "you'll change" yeah. line. Yeah. 
the, the lighting on his eye, there's one pinprick of light in his eyeball, which looks mm. terrific. Yeah. And he's just like generally sort of like, you know, more decayed, more wrinkled, isn't he? And like you said, the, the, the wounds have kind of, they're, they're still there, but they're not as visceral. They've, they've sort of almost started to dry up in a way. So it's, it's, a, yeah. it's another great makeup. This is the grimmest that we see him because um, that's pretty much that stage. We go on to the third stage in the theatre. Yeah. And he's quite chipper again. He's quite cheerful, you know, when we next see him. Yeah, we have that sort of great shot where you see him outside the theatre kind of beckoning David over the road, which means, yeah, only David probably can see him because it's Piccadilly Circus or whatever. Yeah, and cars aren't crashing and people aren't screaming. So so. so I, I don't know what that was, whether that was just a slip on mask of you know him over the road and even if that was griffin done it might not have been it might just be one of the crew but yeah when we get inside we get the the third stage which is a puppet yes but yeah it works really really well you know um it's weird because the thing about a puppet it's like you 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 need lips and a tongue and things like that to make words yes um but he doesn't really have lips he's just got a mouth hasn't he it, yeah. it flaps up and so it's quite a hard thing to pull off because he's basically a vent- he looks like a ventriloquist's dummy yeah the way because his mouth is just opening and closing isn't it yeah uh but yeah he's there with the other victims and various stages of um, yeah. you know his design I, I i always think um reminds me a lot of one of rick baker's earlier works which is the incredible melting man yeah where the eyes are very prominent in this messed up face. I'll tell you what it reminds me of as well from a few years later. It's if you, when you see a lot of um, Bill Stout's um, concept work for Return of the Living Dead, mm. and he was basing a lot of his designs on the old DC comics. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think a lot of the, and probably Baker did the same. I think a lot of the EC comic zombies tend to have the kind of, you know, even though it's undead, why would he still have eyes? The eyes would decay, you know, the eyes they, are probably dry. Well, they would have virtually gone first because they're pretty much all water, yeah, aren't yeah, they? The, so the, they would have gone straight away. Yeah, they'd be like prunes <laughs> in the socket. Um, but yeah, it's the fact that the eyes are still there. And again, when, when you look at the half cops from Return of the Living Dead, she's got these very vivid blue eyes, and yet the rest of us completely decayed. So it's a, it's a little bit of that kind of comic booky thing coming across. Um, or maybe the eyes are meant to signify the soul. That's the yeah, soul of them that's still yeah, intact. W- without the eyes, would you've got the emotion. You know, the, it is always what you focus on. Yes. And, you know, if, if they, they were just hollow sockets, we'd have had nothing to kind of then relate to. But it's the fact it's still Jack's eyes sort of in there. Yeah, um, yeah. You were saying there, it's n- it's not only Jack in the theatre. We've got his previous victims as well. Yeah, um, we've, we've got we've got the three tramps. Yes, um, including that guy. I don't know his name, but the guy with the big bushy beard, the old boy. He was in all. He was in Benny Hills and all sorts yeah. of things on TV, wasn't he? Yeah, in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, we've got them. We've got the the, the, the young couple who were very. I love them. Who were really happy. You know, I mean, I love them. I've got their names. It's Harry Berman and his fiance Judith Browns, and they are just eternally cheerful, aren't <laughs> yeah. they? Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and then we covered in and blood. And then we've got Michael. Um, Michael Carter. Michael Carter, yeah, who uh, is Fortuna. He is, and he's yes. he's also Molossar in the Keep. Uh, Michael Mann's right, Keep. Yeah. So yeah, he's yeah, he's yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's a he's a tall guy, is Michael mm. Carter. Um, you know, you don't realize how tall he is until you see him, sort of. In, well, you didn't really need, have a frame of reference for him, really, did no, you? No, I mean, be- he was by himself down in the underground station. Yeah, but he, he's the he's the most kind of 
peed off, isn't he? In a way. <laughs> yeah, the whole "you must die." Yeah, thing. yeah, and yeah. Um, and it's the bit where the the sin about you know how how he can possibly uh, commit suicide, and you know, <laughs> I know where you can get a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure enough about when they talk about hanging and the, yeah. the the guy with the bushy beard. Not not sure enough, yeah. you too, know. Too messy or something. I think he said. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, no, that that is good. That is good. Talking about you know old Bib Fortuna. Mm. Um, I, I didn't realise until I was looking into this. I just assumed you know the the underground station sequence down on the platform mm. would have been what everybody uses for the underground, which is Aldwych. Right. But it wasn't. It was actually Tottenham Court Road oh, okay. station that they used. Um. Which is a bit of a surprise, but yeah. there you go. And we'll have to mention the fact that we, the, the you know, the the theatre is showing "See You Next Wednesday," which is obviously the, um, of course, you know, the, the staple of all John Landis, John Landis films. Yeah, whether whether it's a spoken line or whether it's a poster or you know, things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah my, it's in there. My my children are still around, but did you ever show films of that nature? No, no, right. we, we we never um, had any. Uh, the the thing they did a little bit before I began, probably till till end of the seventies, early eighties, I think they did, but not while I was there. I, I, but I wasn't there right. until the late eighties, anyway. You see, uh, I I did show them, and and this spoof, see you next Wednesday. Uh, you know, again, is very very close to reality yeah, of that time yeah. because we did show films, you know, that weren't meant to be comedies that had production values exactly like this. You know, they had actors exactly like this. You know? Yeah, I'm trying to think who the guy is who's like the one who walks in. Uh, you know, like the, the, he's a, he's always a tough guy. Yeah, he's the, always a heavy in, like you know, the Sweeney and the professionals. He appear i think he's in long good friday as well yeah like with a big kind of tash and big hair and um you know. yeah when she says oh, i've never seen you before he's going not you him he goes, you know, that, that he goes oh sorry or whatever <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah no he, he he's always a heavy in it yeah and he, he uh, looks like the type of guy who was probably one of the merry men in time bandits in the robin hood sequence yes, and things yeah. like that you know yeah but on to behind the scenes then, okay? Griffin mm. Dunn said in 2007 that his biggest fear was that his mother, who was ill at the time, would not be able to handle seeing a film where her son appeared as a mutilated corpse. Right, okay. You know? Um, and John Landis advised Griffin Dunn that the key to the character of Jack was that he was always going to be encouraging and optimistic and cheerful as a yeah. member of the undead, yeah. no matter what stage of uh, decay he had. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, one thing about it, and you know, th this is one thing um, which you know makeup artists obviously um, have to do is if um, you're shooting a character like Freddy Krueger or something like that, you, you you're doing kind of like he's a main character, so he, he appears um, in numerous scenes, which means the the, the film they take the makeup off next day, puts the makeup back on. You've got to have multiple appliances. I imagine with this sequence with Jack in the hospital, it was a one day shoot. You know, whatever Rick Baker applied that day, I imagine was just for that day, which always lends itself. That's always great. You know, I mean, I, you know, you you want that really. You don't want to have to have multiple appliances and to have to go back in the second day and reapply that same makeup and try and match every single. You know, That's what I was going to say. I mean, you you might be able to do that. I mean, you 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 know, you you know, you've done this. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing. You know, it's one thing to apply you know, the prosthetics again, but then you've got to match exactly just where you smeared the gore. Yeah. To, to make everything, Fre continuity must match, mustn't it? Again, the, the, the Freddy Kruegers and the Hellboys of this world are slightly different because they're a very sort of uniform colour. There's a skin thing, but when, when you've got the blood and the gore, 
Uh, mm. There's nothing worse than having to try and re- replicate things like that. Um, yeah. But like you, you know, it, it's not a long sequence. I could imagine, you know, if they get there first thing in the morning and get the makeup applied, they could have probably shot this within the space of you know several hours, and um, then the makeup's taken off, and that's it. It's done. It's dusted. Same as with the second sequence in the in the apartment. I'm sure it's the same thing. You know, well, there's less gore on the second stage because yeah. he's more all green and the blood really is just on his jacket, isn't yeah. it? You know? But it's not like he's sort of showing up in the same makeup in several different locations over several no. different days where you're thinking, you know, but every time he shows up, he's in a different stage. And yeah. it's a, it's a, it's own unique sequence. Um, and I think as a makeup artist, I think, you know, it's probably better, you know, if you can do it in one take and just have one go at yeah. it and get it right the first time, it saves going back a second day and a third day and a fourth day. Yeah, you know, sure. the, the, these yeah. people who have to do these sort of multiple makeups on these films, um, kind of, you know, I mean, more recently you've got movies like The Guardians of the Galaxy and you've got the, um, the, the character played by the um, Karen Gillan off Doctor Who. Mm. Where she's kind of got all the electronics on her face, all painted on, and but she's mm. she's bald headed and stuff like that. And she's a character which you know has to be sort of in several sequences over several weeks of shooting. You know, it must be quite yeah. difficult to match that on a daily basis and to have all those appliances pre-prepared on a shelf. You know, yeah. um, where where this is kind of a case of yeah, he probably did a couple of test makeups couple of pulls out the mould, you know, tra- tries it on an assistant or whatever, or tries it even on Griffin Dunn. Um, mm. But then on the day of the shoot, yeah, get it right first time. Yeah, yeah. And and apparently that's what um, John Landis want. He was a one-take kind of guy. So that, I guess that all suits it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, because it's not a complicated scene by any means. It's it's pretty much two, two or three cameras set up a uh, sequence, um, you know, like a wide shot, a close-up of Jack, a close-up of uh, David. Uh, there's nothing complicated going on in that room whatsoever. No. Um, you know, it, it's almost like you could get that. You know, it, it is like something from a play. That yes. they're just talking backwards and forwards to each other. There's nothing really happening. You know, th- three or four takes of that, and you've probably got the footage you need. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's it is a fabulous makeup. Again, you know. I think it is the sort of the go-to in a way. If you want to look for something that good, you know, you 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 do look at that and you think this is getting on for what thirty odd, forty odd year old sort of. It's not going to be long till it's forty. Yeah, but it stands up absolutely. It, it does to, to you know? Day. It's 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 a cracking piece of makeup, and you know the yeah. the amount of people I still see on forums emulating, you know, that look and trying to do it, mm. and. Still not probably better in it, you know. Yeah. Um, well, All right. I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing as well is it it is one of those makeups I believe that I, I don't watch The Walking Dead, uh, but I I believe it has showed up in The Walking Dead. Uh, yes. I think it's the second stage though. I think it's the second stage, Jack. I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I saw screen grabs of it, and yeah, that's definitely yeah, it. Yeah. I think they've had Bub in there. I think they've had the the bald zombie from the uh, Dawn of the Dead in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've yeah. certainly had the second stage Jack in there. They do like to throw these cameo appearances in, and um, you know, and it's great. It's it's nods to the to to the master, isn't it? Yeah. 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 To what came before, but uh, yeah. 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 So. I don't know if they've actually done a third stage yet. There's, they, they, they definitely do do what we have here, which is essentially uh, a puppet, and they have done it, although with more 
skin peeling off and everything but uh, i don't know if they've actually copied this but as we were saying third stage is a puppet apparently it took uh, six people to operate it yeah because i think the logically what they did is they put them on the back row Hmm. you see if you've got the back row you've got the wall behind which means you can you can then sort of dig the back of the chair out or back of the wall out and you can operate and if they were sat in the middle of the row the front row then you've got that problem but yeah they put them up against almost like a wooden paneled wall didn't it um, I tell you what, if 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 that was in a, a re, if they were shooting that in a real legitimate porno theatre, I wouldn't want to be laying on the floor there. <laughs> would you? Uh, probably not. No. Pretty darn sure those carpets would have been sticky. Yeah, and it wouldn't have yeah. been Coca Cola. No. <laughs> we're back to the weeping. Yeah. Um, um, and I didn't know this. Griffin Dunn actually operated the jaw mechanism. Uh, All right. He operated the jaw mechanism while providing the dialogue oh, well, live that, on yeah, set. Yeah, well, that, that's great, isn't it? You know, that's that's what you want. So it basically was a ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's good that he was still involved at that stage because they could have quite yeah. easily said, oh, we've got your, your recording, just go back to the... Yeah, we'll ADR it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's good that he was actually involved. Uh, he operated it, yeah. With that, so... <laughs> Aye. All right, so that's the behind the scenes for Jack. So, what do you think of Jack? I think he's brilliant. I mean, if I'm going to have to give a rating, then it's a ten for the Jack stuff because I think it is the standout stuff for me. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I know these days what we were saying about the um, digital stuff. With the first stage, you could easily do it so half of his face is missing. These days, you know, you could. I know again. Uh, Walking Dead do a lot of this where they'll they'll put green makeup on so they can then digitally remove sections of the faces. So they could have easily done Jack so he had much much more kind of hollowed out sections and ripped away sections. But, you know, I think it it wouldn't have added anything to it. In fact, it may have taken away. Um, Mm. But I think it's it's absolutely stunning. You know, it's great makeup and I'd certainly... I like all the Jack bits. I think there's real character, real emotion, real friendship. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd give it a ten, the Jack. Okay, um, I, I I think it's a masterclass in prosthetics, um, you know, and that's a nifty puppet at the end. I'm not going to be as generous as you though, so I'm giving it a nine. Right. Okay. Okay. So so Jack um, ends up with a nine and a half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. That's the show over. Yeah. Um, thanks for your time today, Andrew. Yeah. Oh, just one thing before we go. I do believe that the mm. the, the final stage Jack puppet is one of those things that Tom Spiner actually restored recently, didn't he? If you oh really if you, did he? Yeah. If you follow a guy called Tom Spiner on Instagram and Facebook, he's one of these chaps who he's taken a lot of these things like the original Werewolf uh, third stage final stage and um the puppet and because it was foam latex and it's obviously rotted away he's him and his team kind of going and restore these things uh using uh, more modern materials and i'm fairly sure um there was a picture of him with the jack puppet uh, which was oh, a, i have to look that which out. was an in certainly put on the facebook page it was in an incredibly sorry state when they got it uh you know in terms of the uh the, the degradation of the foam latex crumbling away I love the I love the way that you're saying something that was decaying has decayed. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a shame that something that's decaying has decayed. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, this this Tom Spiner seems to be a bit of a one of these who is, you know, he realizes that this stuff is movie history, and mm. and needs to be kind of kept. So, you know, uh, Baker's 
um, you know, obviously giving him these things to kind of, uh, I, I, it might even be Bob Burns who owns these things now, I'm not too sure. But anyway, he's restored them kind of almost back to, you know, as, as best as they'll ever be. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think they are using kind of silicons um, instead of the latexes because they know they'll actually last. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to look that out and um, I'll put links up on the Facebook page. Yeah, t- right? uh, I think Spine is just spelled S-P-I-N-A. Oh, Spiner. Spiner. Right. Yeah, Tom Spiner. Not, not like Brent Spiner. It's uh, it's S P I N A. Yeah, but I'll if, you, if I'll go a search. Yeah, if you check him out, I said there's there'll certainly be pictures of the stuff he's restored, and he's done he's done a great job on a lot of these, uh, you know, movie creatures, which otherwise would probably be destined for the uh, for the dumpster in a way. All right. Okay. All right. I'll do that. Yeah. All right. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks for that, Andrew. Yeah. Um, thanks for your time again. As I say today, yeah. Um, yeah. In the new year. We'll have to have you back for Rawhead Rex. Cool. <laughs> I had not considered that until today's show, yeah. but uh, yeah, we'll we have to do that. Yeah. All right. All right. Nice talking. Right. To you. Thanks then, Andrew. All right. Cheers, matey. Bye. 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 Dang, 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 ding, dong, ding, blue moon.